This is Matt. I'm the lead pastor at Westminster Baptist Church. Thanks for engaging God's word with us. My prayer for you is that this would be supplemental to your discipleship journey. Uh, If we can connect you with a local church or discipleship group, uh, please contact us at info at discoverwbc.com. So while they're grabbing a seat, I'll tell you a quick story. Uh, So they're like family to me. Um, you know, when you're, when you're with each other for 30 plus weeks, learning about your own struggles there, you know, the whole thing. So Catherine had said, uh, Hey, I came to her and I said, Hey, would you like, you know, especially in student ministry, would you like to learn more about, yeah, I would love that. That'd be great. So we, the first night we're praying and as I'm praying, I think I said something to the effect, Catherine, you can tell the story better than me, but I think I said something to the effect of, and Lord, I just ask you for your protection over us for the next nine or 10 months. Well, while I was praying, Catherine's eyes got big and she was like, I thought this thing was four to five weeks. (laughs) So, (laughs) and again, if you have gone through what we've gone through and they will continue going through training, uh, yeah, it's not a four or five week program as Catherine found out. So good, good stuff. But we're excited. Um, In my previous church, um, we helped over 350 families in, in and outside the church. Um, and I see God doing great things here too. So, um, led people to Christ through it. Um, saw people have massive amount of victory in their life. Uh, it's saved marriages. I mean, I could go on and on and I mean this absolutely nothing that we have done, only what God has done in and through us. So, um, anyway, which will be kind of what the sermon's about. So we're in first Peter, uh, one, uh, 13 through 21. And what we're going to do is I'm going to, we're going to read it. We're going to walk through it. And then I'm going to teach you all, if you don't already know how to do this, how to minister scripture to someone other than just saying, as we say, take two verses and call me in the morning. Okay, we're going to we're going to walk through what does it look like to actually minister God's word to somebody. So it's going to be a little different than a little, we'll say a 15 minute sermon. The rest will be kind of more of a teaching opportunity. So uh, excited to do that with you all. Um, Okay, so main point today is God's mercy leads us to hope and holy living. And it's only through God that we can get to that point. Our hope is not in us. And our holy living is not because of something that we're trying to gain our way uh, access to heaven. It is because of what Christ did on the cross. So Matt has done a wonderful job these last couple of weeks of starting us off in this first Peter series. And I want to give you a couple of reminders that he said. So he said that we have a guardian in God until the end. Thought that was really, really good. A good takeaway for us. What a good reminder and what a great place to have hope in. He said that God's mercy strengthens us in our hope. And he will get us to the point of our inheritance. We have that power, that power that comes only through the salvation. And lastly, our inheritance is more precious than our possessions. And then he decided, hey, you know what? Let's make everybody's life miserable. I'm going to give you four really hard questions. And there's four questions where do you own anything that God can't use? Do you do anything that God can't use? Do you love anything more than God? And do you want anything more than God has given you? I say that because when Michelle and I got home that day, the joke for her and I was, can Matt stop preaching to us? Like right at me? I think Michelle and I were the only ones in the room for that sermon. (laughs) 
So we went home and man, we we chewed through those questions together. And um, I'm going to kind of do the same thing. Uh, you will probably, uh, as we all wanted to uh, attack Matt afterwards, you'll probably want to attack me for the same kind of questions. So, but anyway, uh, let's start here. First Peter 13 through 21. Let's read it. All right. Therefore, with your minds ready for action. Be sober-minded and set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the desires of your former ignorance, but as the one who called you is holy, you also are to be holy in all your conduct. For it is written, Be holy, because I am holy. If you appeal to the Father who judges impartially according to each one's work, you are to conduct yourselves in reverence during your time living as strangers. For you know that you were redeemed from your empty way of life, inherited from your ancestors, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Let me say that again. But with the precious blood of Christ, like that of an unblemished and spotless lamb. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was revealed in the last times for you. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. So this happens often in the New Testament, where we see this idea that they say, like the writer will say, well, this is what God has done. This should lead you to do this. Again, this is what God has done. And now you have the other side of something that we are called to do don't really see scripture saying, this is what we do. And then this is how God's going to change, right? It doesn't do that. It's the complete opposite. And I think it's also important to understand that because it is these things that we're talking about, living hope, counseling and caring for others. It is because of what Christ has done. It is him working in and through us. You often hear that. I've Probably the number one thing I say in most of my prayers. Thank you, Lord, for continuing to work in me and through me to others. Okay? That is because of what he has done. But there is this, there is this thing called an imperative. So that first word in verse 13, therefore, as my seminary professor said to me, Dr. Powers, when you see that word, you better buckle up because you're going to have to be doing something. And we see the same thing here. Verse, we see three imperatives. God has given them the unshakable hope in Jesus. We are to fix our hope completely on what Jesus has done. That's in verse 13. Then in verse 15, we are told to not live like we used to. We are to live in a godly way or a, or a holy way, as it says. And then verse 17, we are to live in fear or reverence. Not like, as my kids would say, fear of the boogeyman but to live in awe and reverence of who God is. So let's do a little deeper dive into 13 through 16. As believers, we are, we are to set our hope on that grace that will be ours when Christ is revealed. So my question to you is, how have you lost your hope at times? I'm sure there's got to be multiple people that have walked in here that have you got tons of stuff going on in your life whether it's a cancer journey or you've lost a loved one recently or maybe you've lost your job, something that has created suffering. At times, we lose that hope based on our circumstances. And I think at times, if we're going to be real, it changes our perspective of who God is and at times we think it changes who God is. And those are absolutely untrue. 
He is a faithful God. He has yet to break a promise that I know of. Am I right, Paul? I don't think he's broken a promise. Right? He is a promise-keeping God. Our circumstances get in the way. And at times we feel that God is keeping us from something. Well, he's not allowing this to happen. He must be, he's trying to keep something from me. Similar to what Adam and Eve had taught to them in the garden. Are you sure you don't want to think like God, right? Similar. So we do this. How do we overcome this? We do this by getting our minds ready for action being sober-minded and not being complacent. And we'll discuss this a little bit more when I show you all how we minister God's Word to people. The main theme of this verse is where we set our hope on, on how we do it. We wait with that hope. Waiting. We love waiting, don't we, don't we people? Love waiting. I had a guy tailgating me at 6.40 in the morning coming to church today. Like, I'm thinking to myself... What is so important? I'm the one preaching, brother. What are you doing? (laughs) Okay? We hate waiting. Folks, our journey here on this earth, we should all just have waiting tattooed on our chest because that's what we're doing. Right? Folks, but in this time while we're waiting, we must refuse the desires of this world and choose what is good. And I believe that God is good. Amen? Amen. Yeah. Warren Wearsby says it this way. I, I think Mr. Wearsby, it's, it's perfect way he says. When you center your thoughts on the return of Christ and live accordingly, you escape the many worldly things that would encumber your mind and hinder your spiritual progress. He goes on to say this. Outlook determines outcome. Attitude determines action. And a Christian who is looking for the glory of God has a greater motivation for present obedience than a Christian who ignores the Lord's return. Outcome, outlook creates outcome and attitude determines action. What wonderful ways of saying it. Folks, we are called to wait with that hope that we have. I mean, look, I've, I've heard most of you all say it because I know I've said it probably 50 times. Okay, Lord, you can come back today. I'm ready, right? But that's not what he has planned right now. So as we wait, we wait with hope. And I encourage you, as 1 Corinthians 16 says, standing firm. We need to stand firm as we wait. Okay, the second part of this passage, verses 17 through 21, the main theme of this is this idea of to live in reverent fear. With our future inheritance and salvation, we are to set our hope completely on Christ, devote ourselves to holiness by imaging Christ well, and to live in that reverent fear. So what does that look like? Like I said earlier, it's not a fear like a horror movie. But we are to have confidence in who God is, yet at the same time be in all of Him. Think about it. So I'll be 55 this year. I think about being on this earth for 55 years. I have been able to see the Lord work in multiple ways. Not just in my own life, but by counseling and caring for others. And just, I, like I've seen Him work. How, how can you deny it, right? So there's this idea of just being fully confident that He's a faithful, promise-keeping God, but at the same time going, being an all because that same God who has a personal relationship with you created everything. 
As we expand our horizons in the space and learn more and more, and again, I, if you ever want to talk to Nick, because he works at Goddard and does this kind of stuff, the more, Nick and I have talked about this, the more that we learn more about the universe, we just, it just makes you even more in all of who God is. Just an amazing, amazing God. So what does it look like? That fear that we're talking about should not, should not prevent us from following him, but instead prevent us from doing foolish things. That fear, that reverence should be a healthy fear. So let me read 18 through 21 one more time for you, because I think it's so, so good and powerful. For you know that you were redeemed from your empty way of life, inherited from your ancestors, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of an unblemished and spotless lamb. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for you. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. The final part of this passage tells us that this fear we are learning about should drive us to a greater, deeper relationship with our Heavenly Father. See, we were redeemed with the precious blood of His Son. Our freedom was purchased by God. And He did it while we were His enemies. That right there should just bring you to your knees. Why we were against Him, denying Him, He was, he was doing this for us. It's, that, it's amazing. This is why we are called to have a healthy fear of God. As our text says, to conduct ourselves in a reverence during our time as living as strangers in this world. Verse 21 ends with another reminder. Our faith and hope are not in us. There is nothing we can do. Our faith and hope are in God for all that He has done, is doing, and will continue to do. So, we've read it. We've walked through it. Now let me show you how to minister Scripture to someone. So let me start with something real quick. Um, so Paul Tripp, who is probably one of my favorite writers, uh, wrote a book called in, in Instruments in a Redeemer's Hands. I've said it so many times, I got tongue-tied there. Instruments in a Redeemer's Hands. And if you really want to read a great book of what we're called to do and how we're to care and counsel for others, there's probably no better book out there. But, but Mr. Tripp has a line in his book that he says, we all counsel and we love giving people advo- advice. The question is, is your counsel biblical? So I want you to think about that. Think about how many times this past week, don't hate me, think about how many times this past week somebody's asked you for advice or counsel and you've given it to them, and if you were to look back, was it biblical? See, at times we like to counsel out of our experience, out of our supposed wisdom we've gained in life. Now, I'm not saying you can't counsel out of your experience, but that experience should be how God, how a biblical way has, has moved you in a certain way. That's how we counsel out of our experience. So let me, let me give you three things to get started with, and then we're going to dive into the passage a little bit more. So what does the Bible teach us about giving biblical counsel? Let me make it clear. These folks up here are biblical counselors. They've been through training. We've talked about how to diagnose certain things. You with me? They have taken what we are all are called to do to another level. 
but we are all called to give biblical counsel. How do I know that? Scripture tells us. Romans 15, 14. My brothers and sisters, I myself am convinced about you that you are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. That word instruct could also mean to teach, guide, and counsel. Second, we are also called to share knowledge, but not just knowledge, our very own lives. 1 Thessalonians 2.8, we are so much for you that we were pleased to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives because you had become dear to us. It's not just about going, hey, read this book. It's about, hey, let's read this book together. Let's talk about it together. Let's do life together. And lastly, the one question that I get asked very often is, so how would you define biblical counsel? Now I'm going to give you kind of a working definition that we use in the biblical counseling ministry, but I think it's pretty good because it's saturated with Scripture. So I say to people when they come to me, we're going to take what's going on in your life, sin or suffering, and filter it through God's Word, 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17. Led by the Holy Spirit, we do this face-to-face, 1 Thessalonians 2.8. We're going to speak truth and love, Ephesians 4.15. As we equip and build up the saints, Ephesians 4.12. To live transformed lives and live out their calling as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.20. And we're going to do this all for what? For me to get a medal? Nope. All for God's glory. It is all for His glory. Now, two mistakes that have taken place in the church. First mistake. I think one of the one of one of the biggest mistakes that's taken place in the church over the last 100 years is we have decided to instead of caring and counseling people in our church, we've pushed it to outside services. Now let me make it clear. I have some wonderful wonderful godly brothers and sisters that work in secular counseling Uh, arenas. I am not knocking at all what they're doing. But what I am saying is the church, it used to be the church that did that. The first counseling facility in this country was not built until like 1908 or something. You're going to quote me on the date. I'm wrong on the date, but it's in the early 1900s. Before that, people got counsel from their church. And why is that? Why should people come to the church for counseling? The Bible is authoritative and sufficient for all of our needs, especially for soul care. The problem is, it's sin. The problem is sin. Whether the sin you're committing that's hurting you, or the sin you're committing that's hurting somebody else and creating suffering. The problem is sin. And the answer is what? Jesus Christ. The process is relational, and because of Jesus, there is hope for change. Anybody in this room been changed by the power of Jesus Christ? Right? So then why aren't we leading people to the power of Jesus Christ? And the second mistake is a mistake that we make as people. Folks, we live in a busy world. I've gotten to a point that I can't watch a TV show without my phone in my hand playing, doing something. I'm doing two things. It's ridiculous. But I complain all the time. I don't have enough time in the day. It's just, it's, I mean, you hear, it's like, we're on this cycle. We're like, we're like gerbils running around in a circle. Life can be really busy. 
And the biggest mistake that we do is instead of saying when somebody comes to you for care and counsel, we do the take two verses and call me in the morning. Hey, so you're struggling with anxiety? Well, hey, you need to take it to prayer and petition. Give it to the Lord. Pray for him. Well, if I could do that, I'd be doing it. That's why I'm coming to you for help. I used the story. I came to a dear brother, dear, dear friend of mine a few years ago. I was struggling in my walk. I just felt like things had gotten kind of dry. And he said to me, he goes, well, man, you, just, you need to read John 15. Oh, you got to abide in Jesus. It's like, thanks. And he walked away. And I remember going like, well, if I could abide in Jesus, I'd be doing it. That's the mistake we make. Because when you want to actually show somebody, unpack it with them on how to abide in Christ, it takes time. And folks, you all are messy. I'm messy. And when you get in other people's mess, it gets really messy. But we're called to do it. We're called to do it. Okay, I've yet to finish what I... We'll, we'll see if I can get through it. Okay, so people say to me, where do I start? And it's simple. God gave you two ears and one mouth for a reason, and one of them shuts on purpose. You are called to listen. The mistake that we make is people go, hey, I'm struggling with this, and we immediately want to solve their problem. Now look, let me make it clear. If you come to me for counsel, I know the solution. It's Jesus Christ but I'm going to do everything in my power to listen to you, help you unpack your story, help you discover what those underlining motives and desires are that are hurting you in that sin struggle or help you in that suffering issue. That's where it starts. Then we must go to God's Word. So let me make it clear. If you're going to counsel somebody with Scripture, guess what that means? you got to know Scripture. You have to be walking your own walk, diving into Scripture, praying, all those things to be able to give good biblical counsel. Okay, so how do you do this? Well, let me remind you of something. You are not teaching them God's Word like you, are, like you would in a class setting. I don't counsel somebody like this. Bill, you sit over here. I'm going to stand up here at the pulpit. I'm going to count. It doesn't work that way. It's face-to-face, shoulder-to-shoulder. You are led by the Holy Spirit. God's given you gifts and talents and you've got His Word. You are more than capable to give somebody biblical counsel. So here's what we're going to do. I don't know if I'll get through all the verses, but we'll have some fun here. So we're going to do the first verse. I'm going to try to show you how you do this. The other thing I'm going to try to show you is we're going to take just the first verse alone and you literally could build a 10-week uh, like a council over a 10-week session of giving somebody homework and questions and things like that. Okay. Therefore, with your minds ready for action, be sober-minded and set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So what I would generally do is once you've got to get a sense of what's going on in their life, one of the first questions you might ask is what the verse is saying. So Paul, tell me, what does, it mean to, what does it mean to be ready for action? Do you feel you're ready for action? And just let Paul talk about it. You're jotting your notes down, okay. Hearing if he's giving you a biblical answer, because his answer might not be biblical. 
take the word, that, that uh, phrase sober-minded. And this is where you got to do, you got to do a little of your own, own homework with stuff like this. But so what does it mean to be sober-minded? So when I was looking it up and I was diving in some counseling books, I thought one of the best phrases I, I read was the term sober-minded means free from intoxicating influences. Being sober-minded means to not be under control of the dangerous outside forces. We do not allow ourselves to be captivated by any type of influences that would lead us from sound judgment. So think about it, sober-minded. Um, anybody like buy, sell a house, like, or sign any big legal documents? Well, one of the first things they'll ask you is, generally they'll ask you, are you on any prescription drugs? Because they want to make sure you're sober-minded. Well, I've been drinking NyQuil all day. Well, maybe you shouldn't be signing this document right now because you're not clear-headed. So that idea of sober-minded. So here's like four questions, five questions you could ask somebody. So what intoxicating influences are keeping you from being sober-minded? How has your sin kept you from being sober-minded? What about your sin is drawing you away from God? A sober-minded life, is that attractive to you? If not, why? And if yes, explain that someone living a sober-minded life means to be continually filled with joy of the Holy Spirit. And lastly, tough question, but you get a good answer a lot of times. Why is it so, what is so attractive about your sin that's not so attractive about God? What is it about your sin that's drawing you in that the God of the universe is trying to draw you in and you don't want to be drawn into? So let's look at verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the desires of your formal, ig- formal, former, sorry, uh, former ignorance. Good question to ask here. What does it look like to be an obedient child of God? And you know what? Before we get there, why don't you tell me, what was it like you as a child with your parents? How, tell me about your obedience to that. And just get them talking. Get them explaining uh, answers to those types of questions. Can you share with me a time? So think about that person that's come to you with, with a sin struggle. Can you share with me a time that you had victory over this sin and the desires you have now? And how did that happen? So what worked for you in the past when you overcame this? So you quit smoking 10 years ago, haven't smoked, and all of a sudden you started smoking. What did you do 10 years ago to stop? I know it might sound um, simple to you all, but we get caught in these kind of addictive, habitual patterns. We don't even realize they're happening. And then you have things like you might want to give them some homework. Like John 16:33 is the verse where it says that I have overcome the world. Well, maybe you have them journal. What does it look like to overcome this? Maybe you have them go into scripture and find other ways that that Christ has overcome. And you have those conversations. Ministering God's word. Not just saying, hey, read this passage and become obedient and sober-minded. You are walking with them. You are helping them unpack it for them to live these things out. But as the one who called you is holy, you also are called to be holy. It is written, I be holy because I am holy. Throw a couple questions at you. What does it mean to be holy? 
Can you achieve holiness here on this earth? Or does that uh, come after you've left this earth? So one of the reasons why I asked that question, if, if I were going to go through this passage with somebody, so tell me what it means to be holy. Well, they might say, I'll probably get a chuckle out of you, I'm holy because I don't cuss anymore. But somebody else might say, no, I'm holy because I'm following the Ten Commandments to the letter of the law. Well, those two things are vastly different. And truthfully, that's not really holiness. So you might end up having to take somebody who came to you with a sin struggle and really take a time where you take a six to eight weeks to explain to them through some type of curriculum on what does it really look like to be imaging a holy God well? All because of they came to you with a sin struggle. I mean, I'm telling you, this happens all the time. But people have, again, people have different thought processes on these kinds of things. So, because of time, I'm going to flip forward to the end. But I would like to share something with you real quick. So, I have taken 1 Peter 13-21, through 21, and I've done it separately, how I've done it. And I actually, a couple people from every service have said, hey, do you think somebody could send that out to the church? I will do that this week so that you can see how I did it, how I built questions, all these kinds of things. Because if you have not figured out, <laughs> I am passionate about giving biblical counsel. I believe wholeheartedly, because I have seen it happen, I have seen tremendous, tremendous amount of life change in people. And it has nothing to do with what I've done. It is all about how God work, works in and through me. So at soon to be 55, I'll turn 55 this summer, I think two things have really stood out to me. And I, I want you to hear me when I say this. I mean this in love. I'm trying to speak truth and love to you. Do you believe God's word is authoritative and sufficient for all things? Do you believe that? Okay. Do you believe you have the Holy Spirit in you? Perfect. We're two for two, folks. We're doing well. Do you believe that you have seen victory because of a faithful God working in and through your life? Agree? Then what the heck is keeping you from giving biblical counsel to people? I'm serious when I say it. Again, folks, we are quick to give people advice and counsel. The question is, is it biblical? So here's your three gospel responses as the worship team comes up. Number one, do you view God as a hoarder or a rewarder? So think about what Adam and Eve saw in the, in the garden. Satan whispering in their ear, oh no, no, he's keeping something from... Don't you want to see things the way God sees things? Do you view God as a hoarder or a rewarder? I hope you see him as a rewarder. Because he's not a hoarder, he's a protector. He protects, and he does so many other things. Are you fearful of God, or fearful of giving up that thing? That is a hard thing to understand. Do you have fear of God, or do you fear, boy, if I give this away, man, my life's going to be miserable. Okay, two. 
What intoxicating influences are keeping you from being sober-minded? And how are you giving into the, the desires that lead you back to past ignorance? Folks, that's right out of the scripture. I didn't make this up. It's just a question I based on what the scripture was saying. Paul Tripp in his book, Instruments in a Redeemer's Hands, constantly talks about what is that underlining current, that desire or motivation you have that leads you back to sin? Because a lot of times it's uncovering what that is that really can give you true victory in that, that, uh, over that sin. And lastly, and I want you to think about this, who has God put in your life that needs someone to take, them, take the time to care and counsel them using God's all-sufficient word? One of the reasons why he gave us his word is to help others grow closer to him. It's not to put a mental picture of books on a bookshelf in your mind of, look, look how much I know. Folks, there's a lot of people in this church. I mean it. Tons of people in this church that know way more details about scripture. They can quote it faster than I can. And I don't mean that. It's great. But I believe wholeheartedly the most important thing is what are you going to do with that knowledge in your own life and in someone else's life? That's what I believe. Because I believe we're called to do that. So let me leave you with this. I hope, and leave you, I, I hope you leave here encouraged knowing that our living hope is real and that one day we will be in the presence of the Lord. But in the meantime, we are called to hang on and image Him well. I picture that little cat hanging on like a, like a, like a meme. You know, sometimes it feels that way. We're just barely hanging on. And lastly, I hope you leave here wanting to counsel and encourage someone else with this passage so that they could live a victorious life with that same hope you have. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for this time. Father, I thank you again for working in and through me, Lord. And Father, I thank you for using a broken person like I am. Oh, Father, you are so good to us, Lord. Um, Father, I just lift up the counseling ministry to you and what is next. But more importantly, Father, I lift up this church. Father, would we be a church that gives good counsel, that cares well for others, and that leads them back to you, Father, because you, not me, not anyone in this room, you, Father, are our solution. I thank you, Father. I love you, and I lift this up to you in Jesus' name. Amen.
Amen, amen, amen. Thank you, worship team, for leading us today. It was wonderful. So uh, you are called to go in the midst of darkness and light it up. One of the ways you can do that is by giving good biblical counsel. Have a great day. You have any questions about the sermon or would like to know more about following after Jesus, uh, please contact us and we would love to talk more about your relationship with Christ and how you can grow in your spiritual journey.